We'll be reading Genesis 42. Joseph's brothers go to Egypt. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us and that we may live and not die. <clears throat> so 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, and with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers, and he spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said, you are spies, but this you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may, may be tested, whether there's truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. And on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your household and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. He returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to replace every man's money in his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with grain and departed. And as one of their opened uh, his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of the sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is at the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told them all that had happened to them. The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly with us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, we are honest men. We have never been spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest this day is with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, by this I shall know that you are honest men. 
Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your household and go on your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. And as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to him, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons. If I do not bring him back to you, put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him at the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with the sorrow of Sheol. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you fulfill your promises, even though it is often not the way we would. When life is scary and uncertain, as incredibly hard as it is, help us to trust that you have a plan for us, plans that are ultimately better than anything we could imagine. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe. Amen. Amen. Thank you all very much. Beautiful. Well, I don't know what you think about whenever I get done reading a text like that, but I think, what a bunch of babies. Um, if you read the text like I do, which probably is not healthy or good, the first time I go through it, I go, oh, he's being mean to us, Dad. Um, but that's just because maybe the household that I grew up in. Um, but what do I know? Maybe that was just me growing up. All right, so look, we're in Genesis part four, right? We've done, we've done Genesis 1 through 11, which is the beginnings. We've done Abraham. We have done Jacob. And now here we are in the last part of Genesis, focusing in on the life, imprisonment, rise, and ultimately rule of Joseph in Egypt. Now, if you'll remember last week, uh, there were some dreams that were given to Joseph um, as we continue on in this journey. And those dreams were given to him, and they play a significant role in the text today. But remember, Joseph, yes, he has descended into slavery, was, was, was put into jail, falsely accused, left there for about a decade, and now he has risen back up to like the vice president of all of Egypt, second in command. He is their great administrator. And he got there again by interpreting dreams and giving wisdom on how to live in light of that revealed reality. He does this uh, at the right hand again of Pharaoh. And now the content of those dreams with Pharaoh, again, putting this into perspective, was that there was going to be a famine that came into the land that lasted seven years, okay? But it was right after seven years of plenty. And so we pick up the story after those dreams and about a year into the famine. Now, I'm putting that timeline together for you because if we put the timeline together, we would then see that Jacob's sons, the age of his sons, range anywhere from 50, which is like Reuben's age, okay? These aren't just little boys running around. I think in my mind, I think, oh, these are just boys. These are adolescents. No, this is grown men, okay? Reuben is 50-ish. Joseph is 37-ish. And Benjamin, the one that can't travel... The little toddler, Benjamin, is about 23. 
Okay, so I just want you to put this into perspective of all the things that are happening in the life of Jacob's family, because Jacob comes into the picture, and it's not just Jacob, but it's his plus 11 sons, right? One, they don't know where he is. They think he's dead, but in fact, he will resurface in their lives today, and it's in that context that we pick up the story. And for the rest of Genesis, 42 all the way to 50, it's one big sweeping conversation between Joseph and his brothers, and what will be ultimately with his dad as well. So, so we got to break this up as we go. Otherwise, we'll be reading. We'll be still be reading Genesis 43 at this point, and then 44 all the way to 50. So here we are in 42. Before we get to the reconciliation, Joseph tests his brothers. Okay, that's what you see happening in Genesis 42. There is a test of their character. What do you mean? A test of their character. Well, what's the big statement that the brothers say to Joseph here in Genesis 42? Don't do what we think you might do. After all, don't think poorly of us, Joseph, ruler of Egypt. We're honest men. They have no clue who they're talking to. If they did, they may not say what they're saying. But we're honest men. It's important to know that Joseph plays the role of an omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing ruler. He's been given insight by the omnipotent, all-powerful, and omniscient God through dreams and revelation. He knows how long the famine has lasted. He knows how long it will last. He knows their plight. He knows who they are. He knows everything going on in their family, and they have no clue. And it draws us to understand if Joseph is testing his brothers and he is standing in the place of God, then we have to understand, well, what kind of God tests us? You believe in a God that tests you? You do believe in that God that tests you. Whether or not you actually believe in tests is another thing altogether. God tests us, and we have to ask the question, what kind of God would test his children? But friends, we have got to get a grasp on this. Otherwise, we have false expectations of God. And when we have false expectations of anything, what comes next? Great disappointment. And when we have great disappointment, we will then root false accusations in those false expectations. So if we don't get a grasp on the kind of God that we serve and love and follow, uh, we're in great peril. So this is a great text for us because ultimately we have got to get a grasp on the God who will test his children along the way. And if we want to get a picture, like is God just being cruel here? Is God being cruel in the scriptures? Is he being cruel in your life through the circumstances that you have walked through or are about to walk through? Is he just, is he just puppet mastering you? Seeing what happens? Well, I would ask, how is it that you relate to your children? You know when they mess up, and you know they've messed up, and they don't know that you know that they messed up. I remember when I was a kid, I just got out of the pantry at my dad's house, and I was, I've always been a cookie monster, um, but like back then, uh, on that day, all he had was Oreos, because he kept Oreos in his house, but my mom kept Chips Ahoy in her house. You, y'all, y'all know which one I like more. Anyways... Uh, the Oreos were at my dad's house, so I just, I just shoveled in some Oreos, right? And then I closed the pantry door, and the way that it worked out is that the pantry door kind of closed off the rest of the house if you had it open. So then I closed it, and who was there? My dad. And he's like, hey, 
It's dinner time soon. Uh-huh. Did you eat any Oreos? Nope. Sure didn't. And what did he do? He's testing me. Not the deed of Oreos. He's testing my character at eight years old or however old I was. And he goes, okay, you didn't eat any Oreos? You know Oreos are the worst kind of cookies to hide. Why? Because all that he had to do was go, open your mouth. And I went, I mean, they were gone. But I opened up, and there's Oreos all up in my teeth. He knew I had done something I wasn't supposed to do, and instead of just chastising me for it, he asked me questions to test my integrity at whatever age that was. You do the same thing when you're parenting. Do you not? I do. If you don't, you should try it. It's a lot of fun. You do this. I think we all do this. Um, but look, here's the deal, right? It's, that's what we're testing. That's what the Lord is testing in us. It's our character. It is not the deed. It's how we're handling the deed. Will we be people that pretend to be someone we're not? We're honest men. Or are we going to come clean with what's truly in our hearts, no matter how many evil deeds are in our past? Now, as we understand that God is a God of testing, I want to make one clarification as we get into the text. Number one, this, it's like God does not tempt us. So that's clear in the scriptures. In the book of James, it says God will never tempt us to sin, but he will test us to reveal the sin that's already there. Huge difference between God tempting us into sin and the God that tests us to reveal our sin. Now, as we understand that, let us understand what the kind of God that is testing us. First thing is first, the God that tests us controls everything. This is what the text will tell us. And I think at some point in your life, the circumstances in your life, are go you are going to be confronted with this big picture idea of God's sovereignty. We bring this up a lot. The reason why we bring it up a lot is because it's super easy to forget in the midst of trials and circumstances that God's not in control. But he is in control, at least we believe that. When we come to God's sovereignty, even over the crazy things, we have three options at least. I just jotted these down this week. It may not be exhaustive. It may not be complete. But come with me here for a little bit. Three options. Option number one with God's sovereignty. We see stuff happening to us, and we, that's usually how we phrase it. These things are just happening to us. Circumstances befall us, and we wonder where God is. God is passive in this, in this option. He is reactive, and he is subject to the circumstance. Option one. Option two, we believe that God rules over the good things, but the bad things belong to Satan. And so God then, our view of God then, is, is subject to our interpretation of every single circumstance and whether or not God is good or not is subject to whether or not we see it appropriately. That's option two. I present to you a better option. It's option three. We see God intricately involved in every detail of all things, both in time and in space. And in this option, God is active over everything and subject to nothing. You think, why are you bringing that up? We're talking about testing. Because we have to figure out what is he doing and what kind of God is doing this. And the first thing that we see in the passage in verse 1, 
Genesis 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And then in verse 2, and he said, behold, I've heard there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may not die but live. There is a famine on the land. What, how did this famine get there? Was it just a circumstance that happened to Jacob and Joseph? Was it because of climate change? Was it mere circumstance? What was going on in the region of Egypt in the Middle East? Well, turn with me. To stick your finger in Genesis 42. And then go to the right over to Psalm 105. Oh, and we have a better picture in Psalm 105. It'll come up on the screen if you don't want to turn there, but I'm going to read a little bit. So my encouragement is to get there. I don't know what yours says at the top of Psalm 105, but mine says, Tell of all of his wonderful works. And then we read. So let's read. Psalm 105, verse 1 through 5, and then 16 through 25. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known the deeds of, uh, his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. We should do this as a call to worship next week. Sing praises to him. Tell of all of his wonderful works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done. His miracles and the judgments he uttered. And we go, oh man, I feel good about this God. Let's keep going. What did I say we were going to? 16. Check this out. Remember all the great deeds? Judgments he uttered? When he summoned a famine, excuse me? He did what? He summoned it. He just brought it up and made it happen. He summoned the famine, the suffering, the difficulty, the trouble on the earth. He brought that. What are we going to do with this God that knows and controls everything? He summoned the famine on the land. He broke all supply of bread. He did that. It didn't just happen. Why? Oh, he had sent a man ahead of Jacob and his family. Joseph, that's the one, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him, Joseph. Now the king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. And he, the Lord, made him, Joseph, the Lord of his house, Pharaoh, and the ruler of all of his possessions, to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. It's the whole reason all this happened. Verse 23, then Israel came to Egypt. That's Jacob and his whole family. We're going to read about this in the coming weeks. Jacob and all of his sons and all of his crew came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And the Lord made his people very fruitful. Oh, we love that, Lord. And he made them stronger than their foes. And then verse 25 comes. And then the Lord turned their hearts to hate his people. He turned the Egyptians' hearts to hate the Israelite people. To deal craftily with his servants. What is going on? This God controls even the hearts of men. He controls the weather. He controls 
everything and anyone in time and in space, he's in control. And that may sound troubling, but who else do you want to be in control? He sends the famine. He causes people to hate his people, which causes suffering, which causes enslavement. What are we to do with this God? The same God, friends, if we're going to go, well, you sent all that trouble. You made their hearts hate them. You know what else he did? He also gave the dreams to Joseph. He also gave the wisdom to Joseph to be able to administer the entire region's worth of grain, to be able to wisely and like discernedly be able to, to manage the whole thing, right? He orchestrated one of his people to be at Egypt at just the right time, strengthening his character to hold his calling and providing relief for the entire region. We don't deserve any of that mercy. And yet God provides a way out. If you struggle with the God who controls all things, maybe you don't want to take it from me, but I've put these quotes up on the screen in the past, and I want to put them again before you. These are two giants in the faith that I want you to hear from them about what kind of God or the fact that God controls all things. A.W. Pink said this, Nothing in all the vast universe can come to pass otherwise than God has eternally purposed. It's an eternal purpose, not a circumstantial one. Here is a foundation of faith. Here is a resting place for the intellect. Here is an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. It is not blind fate, unbridled evil, man or the devil, but the Lord Almighty who is ruling the world, ruling it according to his own good pleasure and for his own eternal glory. And you go, I never heard of A.W. Pink. Maybe he's wrong. All right, you heard R.C. Sproul? He says this, if there is one single molecule in, the, in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. God of testing is a God of refinement. And I would ask if you are in a test or you are about to go into a test or perhaps you're coming out of a test. Who else do you want to test you except the one that knows exactly what's in your heart? Who else do you want to test you except the one that is in control of all things and all people? Who is not just the God of the famine, but also the God of the relief from the famine? Our God controls everything. And if not, we have no assurance of the great promise that we all cling to in times of testing. And what is that great promise? That he's working out all things. For his glory and our good for those that love him, right? Isn't that where we cling to? We have no assurance of that unless he's in control of everything. That's the kind of God that tests us, the one that is in control of all things. Now we may ask ourselves, why? Why does he put us through these things? Glad you asked. He puts us through these things because our God has standards for his people. Now remember, Joseph is God's chosen man, right? He's God's chosen man. He has been given his approval, and that has been made evident through dreams, interpretation, wisdom. Through all he has suffered, he has clung to the presence of God with him. And Jacob's family, that's Joseph's family, they are God's people too. They're God's chosen people. 
but they don't act like it, do they? The brothers that I called whiny babies, maybe before the podcast started, but probably not, right? Those guys, they, they're not really holding the calling as Joseph has. If you compared the two, as a matter of fact, we just can very quickly, unlike Joseph, their behavior does not demonstrate God's blessing. So we re- some review, right? Simeon and Levi, remember what those guys did? After Dinah, in that episode, they trick the whole city of Shechem with the sign of the covenant, and then when they are at their sorest from circumcision, they go in and murder the whole city. And that's God's people. Reuben, one little verse, at the end of all that, Reuben sleeps with his father's concubine as if to say, I'll take over from here, Dad, I got it. Reuben, the firstborn. They all participated in the sale of their brother Joseph. Judah sleeps with his daughter, thinking that it was a cult prostitute, like that's something better. It was his daughter-in-law, rather. And the father of them all, Jacob, was still playing favorites, wasn't he? At the end of this passage, he's going, I have no sons left. You can't take my only one left to his other sons. If I was one of them, I'd be like, well, all right, I guess I'm just chopped liver here, dude. Joseph's brothers are now in Egypt to buy grain and are accused by Joseph that they are spies. They're basically saying, we're honest people. And Joseph is saying, you have come to see us at our most vulnerable. I don't believe you. I know who you are, though they don't know that. We're honest men, he said, they say in verse 11. And now note, he's not saying, we're telling the truth. That would be one isolated action. He doesn't say that. He says, you know us by our integrity. We have a whole lifespan of honesty here. And Joseph listens to this and probably seethed in anger, coupled with a chuckle of disbelief, and the test is on. Why is he testing their honesty? He wants to know, will they treat Simeon the same way that they treated him? going to leave him in jail? Remember, he locks him up. He locks Simeon up after this. Are they going to leave him in jail? Are they going to take the money and run like they took the money and ran with me? But more than that, there's something else in view here. If you read it in verse 9, and Joseph, like they're talking to him, right? Where did you come from? He talks rough to them. I would too. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. That's the key probably to the whole passage, that the the test is on because he remembered the dreams. And what were those dreams? Genesis 37, right? They have to all come and bow down to him. And 10 of them are there, but not the 11th. And not mom and dad. Mom is long gone, but certainly the representatives of mom are still there. Leah and the rest of the concubines are there. And everything that Joseph does from this point out is to get the rest of the family to bow down. Because he knows what's at stake. Not just their preservation, but also that they would fulfill the dreams that God has given him. And here's the reality, right? These 11 men are the precursors to the entire nation of Israel, and they do not live up to that kind of standard. The 12 tribes of Israel, over which Saul and David and Solomon would eventually come from, these men of Simeon and Levi, those guys that did all those things, and Judah and Joseph, 
question is, have they changed in 20 years? Are they still the kind of men that would leave their brother in the pit, sell them into slavery? And we get a little insight here that we didn't have before. Look at verses 21 and 22. Look at the brothers and their response to the accusation that they're spies. Like, we're honest. Of course, he doesn't believe them, and he wants to test them further. 21 and 22 say this. Then they said to one another, man, in truth, oh, well, we're getting to the truth now. I hear you, Siri. It's kind of fun, by the way, when those things happen in here. I don't know if you like it, but I like it. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty, right? They've been saying we're honest men, but in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, Joseph, and that we saw the distress of his soul. When he was pleading with us not to do what they were doing, we ignored it. We were cold-hearted and cold-blooded. Y'all remember that 20 years ago? It's been haunting us. This is why the distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered to them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you didn't listen. So now here comes a reckoning for his blood. And all of a sudden, Joseph finds out that his brother Reuben came to his defense. And they wouldn't listen. No wonder the next verse, we see Joseph weeping in a corner. He's finding some things out about his brother. Number one, his brothers knew that God would bring a reckoning for their cruel deeds. And number two, they have changed. They're not as cold as they once were. They have a maturing response here of the test and of God's character. That they see, man, God will bring a reckoning for this blood that we have spilled. There is maturity. There is progress. There is spiritual formation. These brothers are a bit different. So, friends, how does all this relate to us when it comes to testing? Joseph's test shows us the kind of testing with which God will test us. I'm going to go back here. I'm going to plead with you to put your trust in a God that still puts people to the test. Because some of us right here in this room have gone, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. You realize that's Jesus. You realize that's Father, Son, and Spirit still doing these miraculous and yet difficult things. And you go, well, what do you mean? I don't know if gentle Jesus will do that to me. You remember all the stories of the parables of the talents? The parables of the, the minas? The parable of the money or the, the gifts that he's given you? Remember those stories? All those parables. That the kingdom of heaven is kind of like this. A master goes away and he's entrusted his servants with 10 or 5 or 1. Right? You remember this? And when he entrusts into them, and they go, he goes away for a journey, and he comes back, and he goes, oh, man, my servant, y'all must have been good at work. You probably used the money that I gave you to, to increase my kingdom, to increase my reputation in the marketplace. You who I gave 10, how many did you make? And they go, we made 10. He goes, man, faithful are you. Love it. Come on in, enter the joy of your master. How about the guy that did five? Five? Yeah, I'm right here. How many did you make? I got five. Oh, man, come on in. How about the guy I gave one to? You see, I knew that you were a hard man. And I knew that things were going to be difficult when you came back. So in order to, uh, to assure myself that I wouldn't lose any of your money, oh, master, I, I put it in the ground. And so here you go. You can have your money back. And he goes, you didn't make anything? You're a wicked and lazy servant. You're out. It's a test. Gentle Jesus 
told that parable in almost every single one of the Gospels to assure us our God still operates in this way. And he wants us to be responsible. Don't just steward it. Stewarding is not another word for hoarding. I know you all know that, but I just need you to know. Stewarding is not another word for hoarding. Matter of fact, when you read the scriptures, steward is taking risks. Generously taking risks with what God has given you. So when we think about that, and he is readying us for his return. Our God still tests us. He tested Abraham on the Mount of Moriah when he brought Isaac up for sacrifice. He tested Israel in the desert for 40 years. He tested Jesus in the desert for 40 days. And the good news, friends, is that he's still testing us. He's still discovering the integrity of what is in us. We say we're believers. And yet these circumstances are there to burn away all that which does not belong. Good news, because you can have hope in two things. Number one, God trusts you with the gospel. He knows you're going to mess it up. He gave it to kids like you and me. He knows we're going to mess it up. But the other thing is, is that he puts us through circumstances that test our commitment and our faith in him over time so that we can look back. We all want to be fruitful. We all grow. We all want to ask the Lord for, for, for fruit and maturity. How will we see it if we don't go through testing and realize, okay, what I just went through this morning is way different than what I just went through. I'll just give you my real-life example. This wasn't in the notes, but here you are. This morning, I sent my middle child off to softball at 6 a.m., and at 6.45, they'd gotten to the fields, and she says, text me, hey, Dad, I forgot my cleats. There was a testing in me. Because I would like to just shame her over text. A year ago, six months ago, five years ago, ten years ago, would have happened. A minute ago, before all this happened, it would have happened. I just said, okay, honey. I mean, you got to be kidding me first, but okay. I'll talk to Noah. Noah took my child to softball this morning. Talked to Noah. Didn't talk to her. Coordinated with Noah. Drove down to Wharton this morning. Handed the cleats off to Noah. And he goes, hey, man, I really had to calm her down. She was really terrified. I said, I know that's why I didn't say anything on text. She's already terrified. I don't know what to tell you. All right, here's the cleats. Got to go. Bye. Headed back over. The Lord, truly, I think, as now I'm telling you this, I would not have responded that way, probably if I had not read this passage and studied this passage all week, to give my daughter grace and say, hey, girl, clear your mind. That's what I texted her afterwards. Noah's got your cleats. Clear your mind. Be confident today and go get them. I would have never done that last week. I would have said, you've lost your mind. Play in your Crocs. I don't know what to tell you. Figure it out. Right? There's a testing that well, I want to see fruit of maturity. I can't see the fruit of maturity if I've not put in the same exact situation that I was put in five years ago as I am today and go, okay, five years ago, I acted this way. And now I just acted this way. By the way, I'm not trying to toot my own horn. I'm just telling you right now, the scriptures are alive and active, and they do some things in you, and you should read them. They're helpful for me. All right, now I'm back on script. Last thing, I know we're running late. This is going to be a quick one. God has a standard for us. It's higher than our own, and he's going to mature us through these tests. That's what he does with the brothers here. He, he, is, he is there to re realign us and to test us and refine our souls, and he does this because he has the end in mind. 
a sovereign, good, wise, powerful God who reigns and rules over every circumstance, knowing all things and what is in all his people, yet he tests us because he wants us to know what's in our hearts. Deuteronomy 8.2 says this, he tests us that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. He chastens us, he brings purity to us, he disciplines us. And I'm going to end on two passages really quickly. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, going to come up on your screen. He says this, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that, oh, there's a purpose to the various trials, the testing, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which, by the way, is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's the point Peter's trying to make? God tests you to refine you so that you will give more and more praise. Not sorrow, not suffering for the sake of suffering, so that you will give praise and honor and glory when Jesus comes back for his people. And he's not the only one that says it. James 1, 2, and 3 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, testing of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith it produces steadfastness. You know the deepest Christians I know? The most steadfast Christians I know are the ones that suffer day in and day out. There's something about trial and difficulty that refines our hearts to be more passionate about Jesus. Now, we don't go looking for suffering, but when it befalls us, with this eternal perspective in mind that God controls all things. He has a standard for me that he wants to make me more holy than I am today, tomorrow, and that he is coming back for his people and he wants us to be as pure as possible when he comes. Then I can endure the suffering with an eternal perspective that this God is good and gracious. And though he sent a famine, he sent a man there ahead of time to provide relief. Friends, dear brothers and sisters, when the great tempest comes upon you, like it did for Joseph in jail, like it is now for Joseph's brothers in the text, will you and I throw our accusations against the God who sent the tempest for our own good? Or will we realize that God has always saved the world through suffering? He saved all of Jacob's sons with the suffering of Joseph. He has saved all of the world now through the suffering of his one and only son. And how much more then will he invite you to suffer for the sake not just of your own growth, but also perhaps for the salvation of others? So friends, may we endure hardship under the sovereign, good, wise, and powerful rule of our God Almighty as the world, which is in spiritual famine, looks for places and looks for people within whom have the hope of their eternal sustenance, who is the bread of life, who has left heaven to come down to earth to feed us. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful that you didn't stay in heaven. 
You didn't keep your son in heaven, rather. You sent him here to be the bread of life. That's what we just celebrated with communion, that it would remind us that, that you've got to get inside of us to make a difference. It's not, not just an external thing. It's an internal, soul-level thing that you would provide for us respite. You would provide for us rest. You would provide for us true rest, not just relief, true eternal spiritual rest as we feed on your son Jesus. So whatever tempest we find ourselves in, last week, this week, coming up, the months ahead, when we hit November on the calendar, most of us, or many of us, statistically, are going to sink into a sadness that will last until February. Lord, when those days are here, let us remind ourselves that there is, there is a God controlling all things, that he's bringing, you are bringing us closer in step with your spirit through these difficulties if we would walk in faith and deeper trust that our God is good and near us. May we praise you for these realities. Though they may not be preferred, they are life in a fallen world. They point us to look for your coming all the more. And so we say with all the saints of all time, but especially in Revelation, oh, come, Lord Jesus, come. We wait, we long for, and we plead with your coming. May we respond now in song and in expectation. In Jesus' name, amen.